your names for the... I'm Alan Cable. And I'm Virginia Cable. Mulligan Cable. And um, when and where were you born and what age were you during the war? Um, when and where were you born and I what age? I was born in Chestertown on Kent Street in 1937. It was the last of my family to be born at home. And because there was only one more came here to me, and that was like, and that way he was born in the hospital. Oh. We only had one kid born in the hospital out of seven. And uh, then that's, in those days, the doctor came to you. You didn't go to the doctor. He, well, yeah, you did. But in most cases, you uh, got hold of him somehow or another, and they'd come to your house. The doctor came, and I was delivered by Dr. Copeland. And I can't remember who else was there. But here's the amazing thing. We had a three-digit telephone number. My father, where he worked, had a two-digit phone number. That was a number for the Jutchertown thing. And two digits, 5 And her, she was on a party line. The, um, you'd hear a ring, and you pick, you would have a, it would be your ring, and you'd pick it up. And anybody could pick up on the other lines. There were like three other, four other people. So they could listen to your conversation. Um, so, and, um. That was the way it was. I mean, it was Most people had a, cheaper. Uh, they called a party line because it was more a lot less expensive than a private line. People couldn't afford a private line. Uh, a long distance phone call, and that was a big thing. You called in, you got hold of an operator, told her where you wanted to call and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I hadn't seen it since then when I was a kid. I did see it again when I was in Greece. Uh, on one uh, on the islands there, there's phone exchange where you go in and tell them where you want to call. And you hear telephone operators from all over the damn place passing this one call on. <laughs> and it was amazing. But a, a long-distance call was something. Everybody shouted in the phone because you had to, it was long distance, you know. Oh. So you shouted in the phone. <laughs> <coughs> and, uh, we um, had a phone because of my father's position as the superintendent of the water department, water and wastewater department. So it was, that was the town made sure we had a phone. Not too many other people had a phone, but <laughs> we had one. What were like the businesses like in Chestertown during that time? What were they like? Yeah. We had two Acme markets. They weren't called Acme markets, they were called American stores. Okay. And uh, they were, one of them, that I can really recognize now is where the Chestertown Pharmacy is. That was the second store. There was another one down further where Bonnets is. You don't know when Bonnets is gone too. But uh, that was right on the corner was um, a men's store, Bordley's. I suppose it's, I, they still call it Bordley's Corner. Oh. You're right there on that corner. Everybody hung out on Bordley's Corner. <laughs> and uh, around the corner down. Uh, where uh, Say It Again Sam is, wherever he oh, is. Play it again, Sam? Yeah, that was Gill Brothers Milk and Ice Cream. And uh, they delivered milk and ice cream. Well, they didn't deliver the ice cream except for local stores, but you, they had a delivery thing. I worked as a kid for Worrell's Dairy, and it was up by the Bluebird, and we delivered milk uh, six days a week. Sunday was the only day we had off. I'd have to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, help load the truck, deliver the milk, 
come back, clean things up, and then go to school all day. And milk wasn't rationed, or was it? No special rations. No, you get all the milk you want to drink. Oh. That so was the best. all local, right? It was yeah. local. Yeah. And the, uh... Was, was milk rationed at that oh, time? No, 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 no. Was no. butter rationed at that butter, time? Butter was rationed to, to a degree. But, but most people either knew a farmer or had a cow. And they made their own milk, uh, butter, and uh, buttermilk like that. And the milk delivery, I think, I don't, it was only about 10 or 15 cents a quart for milk. But uh, that was that was an extremely high price for us. Yeah. My parents had a farm here, so we had all the milk and butter that we needed or yeah. could use. Dad raised, during the war, when the food was beginning to get rations things, like um, like we raised pigs. Now, this is right on the edge of town. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a town, actually we were, we lived in and out of the town really. And dad told us one smart thing, you always buy a pregnant hog. Because then when she has her babies, you can eat mama and still have pigs. Yeah. And that's what we did. So were they just for meat? Yeah, we we ate we ate our own hogs, uh, uh, beef. We had to buy beef, and uh, every once in a while you get horse meat and didn't know it. Mm-hmm. Um, They'd bring um, a, a big vats uh, and so forth, and uh, every fall and kill the pigs, right. so that you'd have supply to, uh, usually, during the winter. Usually uh, in November, the hog killing, and they had to have a great big bathtub like thing. But a fire built under it, boiling water, and scald the hog to get the hair off of it. So this like a community neighbors, thing. Yeah, the neighbors would help. Neighbors. Um, if, oh, yeah, it was a if big someone, farm, big thing. someone would have one hog, they'd bring the hog to the farm and and just join in, you know, rather than um, have more. We usually had more than one, so wow. we, you was usually here, and um, yeah. Cut the hog all up. You know, there was no refrigeration to speak of. Mm-hmm. The hams were cured. Hams and shoulders were cured. We called it a sugar cured, but that was really salt. Mm-hmm. Had some sugar in it, but it was, and then they'd roll them in these barrel, uh, barrels or tubs of salt, sugar mixture, pepper, and then they'd wrap them in a, in a cloth bag and hang them someplace where the temperature was pretty even, but not, well, it wasn't always even. And just hang them for about a year that before you got to eat them. I don't know, have you ever tasted country, really country ham? No, it sounds delicious. It's salty as hell. Yeah. But it, it is good. Yeah, the taste that you can't stop eating. It's yeah. like a potato chip. You just want to eat it and eat it. You know, it's it's very good. Not good for you, but very good. <laughs> yeah. So, what was, what else was rationed during that time? Like? What was it rationed? No, rationed. what else was rationed? Rationed. Uh, well, gasoline naturally, yeah. Um, uh, there again, uh, we had dad owned an automobile. Matter of fact, he had just bought a 1940 Buick before the war broke out. Didn't get to use it much because he didn't have much gasoline. But uh, the town had a pickup truck that he used all the time for that, and it, it was they uh, gasoline was not too. Too much, too much ration for for, for a municipality, mm-hmm. but.
but for a private person, gasoline, rubber tires. Boy, you better make them tires. Hope to hell they make last through the war, <laughs> because you could not buy new tires. Uh, tires were worn until the thread, I mean, they were just rags. And so you didn't do any traveling because you, could, you couldn't you know, ride on those tires. Um, what else was riding? Okay, we had, we only thing it was, you had to save our fat. Uh, lard, anything, anything, cooking fat was saved because it went back into the uh, economy. It, well, they used it to make grease, they used it to make soap, and all this was for the military. Uh, they'd make grease for the machinery out of the lard and cooking, baking fat, and stuff like that. But we still save bacon fat to this day. Yeah. <laughs> it's good for cooking. <laughs> it really is. But, uh, See what else was the ration we had? Flour was rationed, and uh, so they had. At the consequence, we had a couple of flour mills around here. Brooks is being one of them, which is Radcliffe. Yeah, Rad Radcliffe Mill. Now that they turned, they and there was another one down there near the armory, and farmers would bring in their wheat, barley, whatever grain it happened to be. And it was milled into flour right here in Chestertown. And uh, it, uh, I don't know that it was that heavily rationed, but uh, we had we never went short of bread that I know of. You had to make your own. Yeah. My God, sliced bread? Unheard of. You did your own slicing, and you learned how to slice thin. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, Every, everything was home home done. Uh, canning, when the, when the vegetables come on from your gardens and stuff like that, man, I'll tell you what, you could, uh, the bottles and jars and the, can, the tops, put them away, put them down in the cellar. Everybody had a, what we call a root cellar or a space where they could hold their canned goods. And it was just lined with cans of tomatoes, corn, Beans, you name it, to last through the winter time. So you, you couldn't buy fresh stuff like that. Yeah. Well, once it was out local, that was it. And um, an orange at Christmas time, that was a big treat. Yeah. Because we you didn't have them. Yeah. So clothing was uh, hard to come by. Why is that? Because the all the cloth went to the military. And uh, so you got a new suit, you made it last. You got a new pair of trousers, you made them last. And uh, hand-me-downs, everybody wore hand-me-downs. You got, if I, if I uh, had, my parents put me in a outfit, say, uh, and I, as I outgrew it, it went down to the next, mm -hmm. next one down, and they wore it until they couldn't fit in it or else it was worn out. Um, stockings, I remember my mother darning socks. She had a, it was this round thing about the size of your fist, a smooth thing. She pulled a sock over, the sock had a hole in it, and she'd sit there with a needle and thread and darn this sock, patch that hole. Always wore um, patched pants and patched shirts, patched everything. <laughs> you, even socks were patched. We have our brothers and sisters are older than us, so we both had um, guys in the in yeah. our family.
family in the war. Oh. Um, mine didn't leave the United States, but was mm -hmm. threatened to twice. But, oh, your uh, Earl didn't go either, did he? No, Earl never left the state of Maryland. He went, he went to boot camp up here in Bainbridge, Maryland. Mm -hmm. And from there he went to, well, no, he did, went to some, they had him in, a, in, a, in an aeronautical school someplace. It wasn't very far from here. Oh, he did got, got the Pensacola, that's what it was. Come back, and he was stationed at Glen L. Martin, right across the bay, where they made the airplanes, and he was an aircraft mechanic, and he was also an enlisted pilot there for a while. So he enlisted? Yeah, he was an enlisted man. He was a chief petty officer when the time the war was over. And uh, he had to get out. He's just a hell of his noise. <laughs> My brother was in Washington College, oh. and then he got and he he did one year, and then he enlisted. Okay. And he could have not gone, yeah. but he and you know he said no, <laughs> I'm I'm going. So then he came back and did three years yeah. at Washington College. That's amazing. Yeah. We were staying down in the well out the edge of town there. It was farmland then. And in the evenings, especially in the evenings, watching the uh, military planes fly over, these B-17s, one after the other, just kept coming over and over and over and over. Of course, then there's a few of them, like her uh, her brother was a bombardier on one, and they'd fly around the house and waggle their wings, and everybody come out and wave at them and stuff like that, you know. And, uh, of course, my brother, he was he was a stage uh, of Martin, flew in, flying these big flying boats, water they landed on the water all the time and uh, right at the end of the war he took my father over there to show him the, the factory and it was, it was I didn't see it naturally but I wouldn't even remember it but I do remember seeing the flying boats and they were big son of a guns <laughs> they, uh, in fact two of them are still in existence and they're at, up in Canada now as firefighters forest firefighters because they land on the water and as, it, as they're landing they scoop up tons of water and fly back out over the forest fire and drop it. Well, I've seen those things. Those things are pretty neat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My brother and he, we had German prisoners here that came every morning and then went back to their, not barracks, Centerville. It's Centerville. Uh, they had them on buses, and they took them around to the people who wanted their help because all their, you know, other men, uh, men were gone. Yeah. So uh, my brother was a bombardier, and they were coming down from Maine. And the pilot says, Mulligan, don't you have um, family in this area? And he said, yeah. So they came over the farm, and the pilot looked down and saw... Uh, more, many many men out here in the yard mm -hmm. and he says Mulligan what do you got out in your yard because they were putting up hay in the yeah. barn and he says they're German prisoners and he said he got very angry yeah. and he had to really convince them that hey I'm gone who is supposed to you know yeah. someone has to do the work um, but they um, it was amazing to see him standing at the door of that airplane going over you know it's just like no this is not possible but uh, yeah, he uh, it, it was it was fun. What was your relationship with the German prisoners and your family? Very good. Very and good. I believe someone has recommended you to talk to Tommy Mulligan. Do you have an interview with him? Um, because we have we had um, we had four 
German prisoners. And if one of them didn't come in the morning and so forth, they'd put another one in. Um, and uh, there were two of them that smoke, spoke English. My brother and, of course, did not meet these men. Mm -hmm. um, they were very nice, very reliable. Um, and they, um, my brother and Tommy went over to see them uh, maybe 15 years ago or so and stayed with them. They didn't, weren't able to talk, but they communi communicated quite well. Mm -hmm. But they stayed at their house for about a week and um, had a very nice time. And they would write us, but of course we'd have to get an interpreter to write back. Mm -hmm. So it, my sister, um, it was at Washington College at the same time because she was a year younger. And so she knew them better, and she would write to them, and they'd interpret, but then gradually the correspondence stopped. But um, they were reliable, got the work done, very, very nice men, and were really tickled to see the Chesapeake Bay. They thought they would never, ever see the Chesapeake Bay. And, um, yeah, it was, it was quite an experience. I was much younger. I was... 11 years younger, so they couldn't figure me out. They didn't know, I was like five years old. They couldn't figure out who I was in this uh, group of people. And uh, they thought um, I was Catherine's daughter, uh, where, you know, I, it was, Catherine was my sister. Okay. But they were very nice, very nice men. But I've heard many times that uh, the Americans took care of the German prisoners when they were over here by feeding them that they weren't supposed to and mm -hmm. so forth. Whereas the American prisoners in Germany, the German people took care of them. So it wasn't the, it wasn't the people that were involved in this war. It was the, the, the uh, yeah, it was the, the uh, um, government um, that, you know, because everyone took care of each other when they had the um, chance to, yeah. Yeah, for the most part, nobody wanted to fight the damn war. Right? We just, but we didn't want to speak German either. Yeah. <laughs> and Hitler was uh, not a nice guy, nor was Tojo. So first morning, Dad picked up the men on at the hill. Um, they didn't have anything to eat, and he said, uh, "You know, where's your food?" Mm -hmm. So he called them at you know the pe the people, and he said. These men don't have anything to eat. And he says they left here with a buttered sandwich, and that's what they get. So mother told them that um, they had a, we have a house out back, a little track. And she said, go into it, and, and I'll hand food out to you or lunch out to you. And if there were a different than the four that came regularly, and they were here for about six months, and if it was different than the four that usually came, they wouldn't come up. And uh, so they finally, mom made arrangements with, if it would happen that way, that they would just come up singly and the other guy wouldn't know what they were doing. Mm -hmm. But um, it's, so they fed them. I mean, they worked hard. They had to be fed. Yeah. Um, so they handed food out the back door. And it's kind of always a funny the f that, you know, okay, we'll, we'll hand food out the back door to you because, you know, that's what mom did um, for the prisoners. Like with the community and yes, there were. We had a German uh, person, mm -hmm. American but German, who lived next door to us, and he was quite angry that Dad would, um, you know, had these men here. And in this group of people in this neighborhood, there were many of the same family, mm -hmm. 
and they didn't trust them or afraid of them. Uh, my dad was from New York. He's Irish originally, and, um, and he came down during the Depression from New York. And farming was different and new to him because he was a taxi driver. And so when he got down here, it, he was totally different uh, way of going, doing things. Yeah. And he trusted these men. Um, he was supposed to have an interpreter with them at all times mm -hmm. since they were German. And the, the interpreter, and he hired them, and the, the man was here. And um, he... Um, couple of days afterward he said we don't I don't need to be watching these men he said they're not going to do anything where are they going to go yes yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, when they came off the bus one time at the top of the hill one made a different move and the uh, guards pulled a gun and my father got out of the truck and he says don't you pull a gun on these men he says they're not going to do anything leave them alone and uh, you know they just trusted each other and they worked I mean you know they at, th at that time, you got up the wood for the winter. Mm -hmm. By you know, you had to chop the wood. Um, you had to get everything in ready for the winter, plus all the crops. And it was shacked, shocked corn. You know, they were in little shocks. They, they, they didn't pick them. Okay. But they were solid, solid corn stacked in like looked yeah. like a, looked like a teepee. Okay. And he just fields it out. And then later on, they go through the the corn shocks and pick the corn out of it. And they didn't pick it like they do today, you know. They cut the whole thing, shock it, let it cure, then go back, take a take a corn shock, and uh, get the corn out of it, and take chop the uh, stalk up for fodder for the cows or uh, bedding, whatever. Mm -hmm. <coughs> That's the way they lived. Dad had this farm and then two others, so it was quite a bit of, of work to get done, and. Um, so you know, it was they just it was he did the, his work and took these men to other farms to get them their work done, because then they finally realized they could be trusted that it wasn't something that they needed to be afraid of. So they they helped in the neighborhood, but when it first happened, they were afraid. They were you know apprehensive that you know like you're not going to bring these men in this neighborhood, but um, it, they learned that they could trust them. He tilled two, okay. and and owned this one. Absentee wow. landlord. It was an absentee landlord type thing. Oh, okay. You know, somebody else owned the farm but did not live here, or else was in the military and didn't live here, and he'd uh, he'd have to pay rent from the crops for the land. Oh, yes, yeah, something like that. Like we, that's what we do right now. We don't farm the land. We uh, rent the land out for farming. And uh, get enough to pay the taxes, and that's it. And taxes go up every year. <laughs> My sister was telling me that they were very, the German prisoners were very upset when they got here because uh, the farms were like this one is right now. Uh, a lot of brush and a lot of um, trees and so forth. Um, because in Germany, it's very clean. You know, it's it's not like this. The reason the farm is like this now is because they want the deer and the turkeys and the rabbits. Um, and you can't have that on a flat field. Hunting was a way of life then, too, because many a time you get up in the morning and go out, like you know, Mr. Barrel's farm there, which is now Byford Heights and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, you go out and get her a couple of rabbits for dinner. As long as you took Mr. Barrel, at least one. You had to have one. A quail, man, quail were plentiful those days because we had all the hedgerows. And uh, so we would either go around rabbits and quail like that, and ducks, geese. The geese weren't so much because they all stay stopped up in Cecil's County. But the ducks come down here. Yeah, I see some. Oh, we had ducks. You wouldn't believe the ducks would be almost black, black in the sky with ducks. Much more than now. There were much more um, uh, uh, geese and so forth. Well, commercial did that. Yeah. What kind of crops did you guys grow on the farm? We had tomatoes and then corn. Okay. And um, I'm not too sure of the rest. I was like five years old. So um, I'm not, you know, everything I know, I've, got, I've heard. Yeah. Um, but um, it, uh, it, it was mostly corn, I'm sure, because of the cows. So okay. they, they had to do the corn for, to feed the cows for the winter. Mm -hmm. so. A lot of the stuff, like the tomatoes and stuff, well, there was one cannery, but it opened up after the war. Uh, most of the stuff was shipped to Baltimore, Philadelphia, like that. Where the fish whistle is, the restaurant... That was Kibler's Wharf back during there. And we had freight boats come in and all owned locally and like that. And they uh, hauled the uh, tomatoes and grain or whatever to Baltimore, Philadelphia and like that. And, and that's how they made their living not doing that. And uh, they had no, no trouble getting fuel. And we had those old engines, they go punk, punk, and they were gone half a mile, you know. <laughs> They were very frugal as fuel, but they'd load those boats down till they had about one inch of freeboard. It's a wonder they didn't sink all the time. The water just dashed over them, they just keep right on going. So, uh, we had a big fertilizer factory where you, or your, your um, college, what do you call it, pavilion is? Pavilion? Yeah, the, the pavilion, Wilmer Park. That oh, where okay. Wilma Park is, that's where that's where a cannery was, okay. but that was there for the war, and but before that, just where, where where the pavilion is now, and on down further, there was a um, fertilizer factory, and that's where the farmers got their fertilizer for the farm, for the farm here. They go in there and get it. Uh, nothing was wasted. And a cow died, it was ground up in the fertilizer. Horse died. Ground up in the fertilizer. Did they get these ideas, ideals like from the Great Depression, learning these um, ways to save and ration food? Well, I don't know if the Great Depression had anything to do with it. It was just a way of life. Just a way, okay. And uh, and then it not only became a, was a way of life, it became a necessity because of the war. You had you did it or you didn't have it. And so you just put up with a lot of stuff that you didn't put up with when you, we were at peace. <laughs> so, what else can I fill you in on? Well, you mentioned about a garden. Did garden. you have a victory garden? Yeah, well, we didn't call it a victory garden. We just called it a garden. garden? Uh, I'm sure they had one on the farm. I know that. But we had one in town. I guess it would be maybe four acres and we raised every kind of vegetable you could think of. And one of the ways of preserving it was in, in a kiln, K-I-L-N. Um, it, it was a big pile of dirt. It's all it was, was a big pile of dirt. 
They put the vegetables, like potatoes, the hard vegetables. They put them in this kiln. They bury them. And as you needed them, you went and dug them out. And they stayed fresh. Down the, we stored a lot of it in their basements, stuff like that, hanging and drying stuff. Oh, you, all kinds of things you can do. <laughs> Uh, well, we had our own brick brick factory, so they uh, made bricks for buildings all around here out of that. The basements were are, were dirt floors, so that that you could put your food down yeah. there, you know, better. Yeah, the basements were always I would say about fifty six to sixty five degrees year round, unless you had a furnace down there, yeah. but most people didn't. We heated each room had its own heating source, a coal stove, a wood stove, or something like that. Uh, I remember this, in, yeah, in town where I lived, we had a, a either a wood stove or a coal stove in every darn room, except for upstairs. Uh, they used to open the doors up the stairwell to let the heat go up for the upstairs. That's the only heat you got. Wow. That's the kind of boat she's talking about. The water comes in one side and just goes off the other. And... Uh, um, yeah, they, they were skipjacks. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that, wow. Once. Those are sailboats. Yes. They, yeah. They, uh, yeah. they hauled in the oysters. They had a big oyster fleet up until 1952. 1952 or three, I guess. Then, the, then they just kind of. There's a few of them still working the water, mm -hmm. but uh, they could dredge under sail. Otherwise, it was hand tonging. Two long poles with these claws on the end. Yeah. You put them down and you work them and up to 20 feet of water. And now I'll tell you one thing a man that was do doing hand tongue, he had a set of shoulders and arms on him from that work. Yeah. But there they'd sail along and drag this dredge, and the dredge would fill up with oysters, fish, whatever it happened to be. Oysters was what they were after. Mm -hmm. And they call, and everyone, they, get a, they call it a lick. You would get a good lick or not a good or a bad lick, and depending on how many oysters you got, they'd load those. Everybody thought that they loaded the oysters down. The boat had a hold on it down below. Everybody thought they put the oysters down. No, they put the oysters on the deck. Down in the hold was all the supplies they had because they go out for a week, two weeks at a time, and never come back in until they had a load of oysters. And they lived on lived on those sailboats, and they were about. Mm, 30 feet long, 40 many, feet long. How many people on a boat? Five at the maximum. Five, yeah, okay. yeah. And the stories you could hear about those, to, I'll tell you, they go out in a hurricane and still catch oysters. <laughs> people, the people were crazy. Wow. <laughs> but they were also hungry. Were there any accidents you know of? <clears throat> well, I really don't know of any great accidents. I, that uh, the only one I can remember was was, was one of the boats. It was a bug eye had been changed in over into a, a freight boat, mm -hmm. and was called the Kent from Kent County, yeah. and it went around Love Point and caught fire and sunk. And that was in winter time, and he lost his load. My father ran a freight boat for up until just after I was born. And then, they, then he got the job in town with, with the water department then. But he, he'd uh, haul the grain, tomatoes, apples, whatever it happened to be. Yeah. 
Baltimore, Philadelphia, Wilmington, like that on on this boat. It was. I remember the name of the boat was called the Little Charlie, and the Navy uh, commandeered the boat and gave him a pittance of payment, and they turned it into a welding boat. And the last time he saw heard of her, she was caught between two ships and crushed over in Baltimore Harbor. What's a welding boat? Welding. Uh, they welding? welded the steel for the okay. on the uh, the newer ships, the Navy ships. And he got caught between a couple of them somehow or another and got crushed. Wow. So I don't know if anybody got hurt or not, but <laughs> boat what, boat was lost. That's what we're talking about with the sharks at Point. Wow, they're big. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, and then... Uh, duck hunting blinds. <laughs> you climb up the top of them damn things and sit there yeah. on a moonlit night with a bow and arrow. <laughs> did you bow and arrow? Oh, I did. <laughs> It was quiet. You want to duck, you pin them to the ground. You get. <coughs> was there a black market in Chestertown? Do you I'm sure know? There was. I'm sure there was. Yeah. Uh, uh, it would probably be the biggest black market. It would be for booze. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, everybody had a still. Yeah. And uh, there was no shortage of uh, liquor and beer. I don't I don't remember. Oh yeah, you. Yeah. I do remember two beer labels: Arrow Beer and Gunther. That's the only two. Be- and then there, then there was uh, what we call One Eye, but National Bohemian, mm-hmm. and we had that. But they all come in bottles in those days. But everybody made their own. On we're sitting in the house one evening, I went in town, and they put the beer down in the cellar to ripen, I guess, mm-hmm. and they used. Um, um, bottle corks. They didn't use caps. They didn't, they didn't have cappers. They capped it with a cork. And we're sitting there eating dinner, and all of a sudden we hear this plink, plunk, plunk, plink, plink. The damn beer, it was a hot day, and the beer had started fermenting, and they was shooting them corks out. So everybody ran down the basement, started drinking beer as fast as they could. Instead of black market, it was taking care of someone else. You know, you took care of each other. Yeah. You didn't sell it out of here. You didn't get rid of it out of uh, this area. Everybody gave things away. Um, yeah, we yeah, just gave it. You, you'd give it away. You didn't have a black market to take stuff to Baltimore. You took care of the people around here, yeah. and it wasn't it wasn't a money thing because there was no money. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a trade or that type of thing. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. it uh, it was a much calmer world back then. Yeah, it. Um, it, it, you know, you took care of each other, did the best you could, um, instead of trying to. Let me know if the microphone's in your way. No, that's okay. Instead of, um, you know, trying to hurt someone else's uh, success, you know, you just tried to help everybody else. Yeah. Going back to the telephone, if the telephone rang once a month, and boy, I tell you what, that was excitement. Yeah. <laughs> we just did not get phone calls. Fishing and hunting, naturally, but we did. Every, there was a lot of fishing. Rock Hall at the time was a major fishing port. Uh, rockfish, crabs, clams, you name it, and not any, uh, anything like today. Today is just a little quaint little village. Today, um, this is not. This is Menorah. Um, 
uh, with the horses. You know, they take the manure out in the field from the cow stable, put it on the land. And that's what he means by looking like a teepee when you yeah. get into it. Was that just easier to pile up that way, or did they do that for a reason to pile well, up Well, they're, they're probably taking the corn off of it here. Okay. But, no, the reason they did that is or they, that's the way they're done. The, the corn, shocking the corn. Yeah. It's just that way. Well, the Indians did that, didn't they? Didn't they shock the corn? Buying war bonds. It was, it was help to help raise money for it. And it was, well, it was right by the telephone company. The telephone, we had operators, you know. We did, you didn't just, there was no dial phone. You call, you picked up the phone and you waited for the operator to say number, please. Or if you knew her and you could recognize her by voice, say, Clarity, I'm trying to get a hold of Sam. Can you get him for me? And it was just, just like that. I used to see Mayberry RFD. Well, that's what it was, what it was like. Yeah, uh, get, get a hold of Sam for me. And they knew who Sam was. They didn't worry about, what was it, Sam Callahan or Sam Spade or what? Mm -hmm. so they knew the Sam that you wanted. <laughs> and everybody knew the operator's names and like that. And matter of fact, I think the um, they closed a, a telephone down at night after 10 o'clock, 9 or 10 o'clock. Chestertown, uh, you rolled the sidewalks up at 530 because everything closed. Wednesday was the big day. All the farmers come into town on Wednesdays to do the farming, um, do their shopping, and it was a time for visiting and such as that. Uh, great, you know, going back into the back of the American store and watch them unload the bread truck. Boy, that was like big experience. <laughs> and that store here somewhere, I just had it a minute ago. It, but the plaza looks more or less just like it, a little bit like it did. Uh, way back then but the plaza the, where the AMP store was now now you're talking you know where the AMP was there where they had to before the Dollar General store moved in that was just a valley it was a big valley hmm. but the town didn't have that many people in it Everybody knew everybody. Yeah. Uh, it didn't care whether you're black, white, or what. They knew you, or you knew, or you knew them. Did it even get more closer during the war? I'm or sorry. Did it get more closer when it was during the war, or was it always just very close? It was, it was about the same. It stayed about the same. Uh, as far as racial prejudice was concerned, yeah, it was there, yeah. but it just wasn't out, you know? Yeah. Uh, it was there. Uh, there's the... So both sides used the N-word <laughs> quite freely, and it didn't bother either side. Or it may, may have, but just, they didn't realize it. It's just the way it was. It's just the way it was. And uh, that now you can't sneeze without having somebody jump down <laughs> your side. <laughs> so it's, the thing it is about today is they were afraid of offending somebody. That's that's gonna really hurt us. We didn't have political correctness back during uh, the war because well we hated Germany, we hated Germans, not you know as as, as a group I'm saying, yeah. but not as individuals. We hated Japanese same way. Uh, we may have a good Japanese friend, but we hated Japan. 
Uh, and we had we wanted to make a remark about how they were doing. We made the remark. It was just very honest. Yeah, it was, yeah. Just and it just it came out that way, and that was it. It was a way of life. We did it that way. And we were far from politically correct. We just opened our mouth and down it come. Yeah. Oh. And part of this recording seems to have not been saved. Uh, could you like repeat the part about the black market? Sorry? What about the black market? No, when I, when I was recording this, I messed up and turned it off for a couple of minutes, and I realized after the black market part. And you expect us to remember what we said? No, no. It's traded and yeah, shared each other. No, we, no, we really, we did not have a black market as as such. Well, we, yeah, there was a kind of one because some of the things were rubber tires. That was a big thing. No, but they were made of uh, real rubber, so they didn't last as long. Were they like were they solid tires that didn't have air inside them? You got a tire, you got a tire. That was it. Oh, you got no rim. You got no nothing. Okay. You didn't. They came with inner tubes. So you did pump them up. And you pumped them up. Okay. Either by hand or some uh, some of the garages had compressors, but the inner tube. Uh, the thing that was a great little, little thing. You, you didn't patch the tire. If you got a flat, you patched the inner tube. And that involved taking the tire, breaking it down, pull the tube out, finding the hole, put a patch on it, and pumping it back up and sticking it back on. And a blowout could scare the hell out of you because it was loud to went bang. Yeah, no, nothing quiet about it. It just went out, went off. So yeah, I remember we were coming back from a Tallchester thing, and a hot day naturally, and we had just got to uh, where Brooks's Mill is, and we. Had, the old Buick had a blowout. Boom! Scared the hell out of us all. It was still during the war. <laughs> and we didn't know whether we was being shot or what. <laughs> but uh, we didn't have to, actually, we didn't worry about being shot at. Everybody, we weren't worried about an invasion. Because everybody had a gun. And we still, most people still do, but... It, that would have been the biggest, but that's one reason why uh, Germany and Japan did not want to invade the United States, because all them people got guns. They're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> They're and, and that's a fact. We get laid arm up in no time. Yeah. He was telling me about this tomato. Uh-huh. Okay, that, this is them being loaded on the boat, getting ready to go to Baltimore. And that's how they loaded the tomatoes to, to go And this is the wheat. They did the corn. Well, this is what they do with the wheat. More or less the same way, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So where would you screw up? (laughs) (laughs) So where'd you get your news from? Where did you get your news from? Yes. Would you believe we had three newspapers in Chestertown at the time? Wow. I can remember the name of two. We had the Kent News, mm-hmm. and we had the Enterprise, mm-hmm. and I can't not remember what the other one is. I've been we've been trying to There's bring the that. Garden? Oh no no no. You know where you know where Lawyers Row is. The what? Lawyers Row in Chestertown. The little 
itty bitty street goes back at the courthouse. Wait, is that the actual okay. name of the road? That's where that's where the newspapers were located. And then, then the Kent News was the first one to move into the, what's the name of that building? It's got the uh, Mason's Cross in the front. Emmanuel Church? No, no, no. It's got the Mason's Cross in oh, the front the, of it. Uh, the Hogan building? Yeah, the Hogan's building. That, that, that was their big move. Then they moved on. And then, then the Enterprise just kind of died mm -hmm. as well as the other one. Was there a newspaper by the name of the Elm? Oh, no, that was a Washington College no, one. Oh, that's a Washington College yeah, one. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> I have no idea how long that that was been in. I think it's, it's still going. I think it says 1923, according to yeah. the records. That's the telephone you kept talking about. That's the way our uh, phones were. That's yeah, amazing. It looks like and because you dialed it this way, I mean, you know. You could. Is that a crank on the side? Yep, you just. Okay, yeah, you crank that to get the operator's attention. <laughs> It rang a little bell, or made a light come on, on her on her board. I think it says like in the early like early early 1900s, they originally would hire like teenage boys to be operators, but they we they started hiring women when the teenage boys were just kind of keep messing with the callers. Yeah, yeah, that's about right. When teenage boys mess all the time, <laughs> but the women they needed the work, and they needed, they didn't pay much. I'm sure of that. But uh, man, you're sitting, there, uh, you're sitting there, and here's this box sitting there with a uh, hundred holes in it, and you have to put the wire to, in the right hole to get make the connection, and then you turn the crank <laughs> to get the power on. So, what else? Did you guys have a radio? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, when Pearl Harbor was bombed. We had, as I mentioned earlier, Dad had that 1940 Buick. My grandfather and grandmother didn't have electricity and, it, and didn't have, even have a portable radio. So we went out to the, the, uh, where they lived on Buckingham Landing. Mm -hmm. And Dad, Granddad was a waterman. And he didn't he have a, no power ever. It was always with oars and maybe rig a sail. But, uh, we went out there in the car, because it had a radio in it, and turned the radio on, and he sit around and listened to the music. And Dad was afraid the battery was going to go dead in the car, so he'd start the car every five or ten minutes, charge the battery back up. And uh, then somebody said, Dad, you're burning a lot of gasoline. He says, well, I ain't going to spend the night here. <laughs> so anyhow, we did, uh, did uh, that was our radio contact to listen to the news all the time. I remember uh, um, the fireside chats by FDR, and we used to watch the radio. Now, we had a radio almost the size of that cabinet right there because it had all the tubes and one, one great big speaker, you know, and a dial to light the house up. And during blackouts, we'd have to, ha have to hang a towel over the dial because it was so damn bright. <laughs> But anyhow, we'd sit there and watch the radio. We had, our imagination, we didn't, we had a movie theater. Mm -hmm. um, it played one movie uh, every, lasted for about two weeks before you got a change. The yeah. uh, movie wasn't expensive, about 10 cents to get in to see it. Mm -hmm. And you see it as many times as you wanted to for as long, long as you had dimes or whatever to get in to see it. But, um, so we had Trevor McGee and Molly. 
We had um, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. We even had a little bit of uh, uh, Jack Benny. All these old guys on there. And then we had um, the great um, what the entertainment shows like Lone Ranger. Yeah, the Lone Ranger. Listen to the Lone Ranger and look at it. Look at the TV, the uh, radio, like it was a TV. Yeah, yeah. In your imagination, <laughs> you, you saw it. You saw it. Yeah. Your imagination was your thing, and it, you you could see the man on the white horse, and you could see the Indian with him, and, and you, I mean, you you saw this stuff by watching that radio. It helped with your imagination, because people don't have stuff. imaginations <laughs> now. It they, yeah. they just are none. Uh, but it, it really, you know, you you, had, you imagined what was happening. Wow. Yeah, it was it was neat. White nights. I'm talking boxing. That was a big thing. Friday night fights. Everybody get together. and would come over to the house and have cheese and crackers. Somebody might bring some beer along, and they'd sit there. Uh, kids were put to bed. Get the hell out of the house. You know. They all adults would sit around the radio listening to the fights. Joe Lewis, and he was a he was a big champ back then during the war. He he served he he and they drafted him and he went. And um, but he he's a he was a great boxer. He really was. And there was Marciano and all them other old guys, but they'd sit there and watch that radio, and you could see the guys punching, you could feel it hitting. I mean, it was just, you know, it was real to us. <coughs> Today, I don't know. <laughs> I, I still listen to the radio. In fact, I got a few of the old um, tapes of the old shows and like that. The Inner Sanctum, man, that was, that was a show that was scared the bejesus out of you. What's that about? It was, a, it was just a horror show, oh, but it was on the radio. And it just had this, it opened up this creaking door. Um, and, you know, this door's creaking and squealing open, you know. And then you know the story. And then they always talked in a low voice. Because this is going to happen. <laughs> then there was a shadow. The shadow always knew what was happening. No matter what. Uh. My grandfather used to listen to Captain Midnight. Oh, yeah, yeah. Forgot about him. He come along. He come along a little later, but all all the old radio shows there. If I turn the fan on, it's gonna mess up your microphone. So, yeah, we'll or I can. Oh, it, you want the fan on? Um, I'll, it will, I'll, it'll see how, I'll, I'll see how the mic reacts. I could. So I Are you uncomfortable? No, no, but he's sweating so badly. I thought it would help. Are you okay? I'm just moving around a lot. Okay. Oh, I think okay. we're okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, the hell with him. <laughs> we're all right. <laughs> All right, what else? Well, you mentioned Pearl Harbor. What was your... Pearl, Pearl Harbor. Harbor. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what was um, your family's reaction or your reaction when that happened? Total shock. For one thing, we didn't know where the hell Pearl Harbor was. Mm-hmm. We thought it was some kind of girl. We didn't know, and then we found out what it was, and then, then we found out how many people were killed in this thing, and then it was total outrage. Uh, everybody wanted to take a crack at the Japs. Everybody did. And uh, did that come out of fear? 
No. Come out of animosity. Total an we we it was instant hate for Japan. Now we didn't care what they looked like dead or anything like that. They were the little yellow bastards. And uh, we were we did anything we could. And of course then look at it now. But um it was it was it was in instant hate and guys that never had thought of entering the military were jumping in line to go to, uh, to sign up and go it was never the draft was still there and but you know there was so many volunteers people felt very patriotic and like yeah, they're oh, totally. oh. man there was a lot of flag waving uh don't uh Dishonor the flag at all. You're gonna, you're gonna get in a fight whether you like it or not. <coughs> we defended our flag. We defended the country. Uh, it was, like I said, we, we just had and Germany. Well, we did like Germany anyhow. We, we we loved England naturally. The only thing that separates the United States and England is a language that neither one of us can understand. <laughs> They speak a different English than we do. Yes. And uh, I don't know. Uh, I do remember one sunset. We were down in Buckingham on the radio thing. The sunset, and it was the sky was totally red. I mean, it was a red sunset. And I, I remember remarking to Dad, the sky is really red. He says, yeah. That's because they're burning all them damn Japs. And that was a, way, that was a feeling. Yeah. <coughs> so, uh, yeah, I had an older brother. He was in Guam at the last year of, of the war. The Guam had already been taken over mm -hmm. by the United States. And there were still a few up, hiding up in the hills. But they didn't worry too much about them. But he was a storekeeper. He spent a, about a year, year and a half in Guam. And, and he's the only one that was any, any one of the family that got in when we were close to real fighting. I guess we were lucky, you know, in that sense of word. One, two of them never left the state of Maryland, and one... Well, since you were five, you did get into war in, um, but not World War Two. Yeah, I missed the most. I missed the Korean War by one, one year. He was in uh, Vietnam. Yeah, I got that. I can tell you stories about that stuff. Some of them funny. <laughs> we can, like, after we're done with the interview, please tell us anything. We would love yeah. to hear. I come back from one, uh, we call them Westpacs. And I spent 20, 20 years in the Navy and, and three years in the National Guard, so I got 20 years of ser 23 years of service. Anyhow, come, coming back from Westpacs over there off of Vietnam, uh, we got free Disneyland tickets for the, your family. No, no, it, it was ticket. You know, use them when you want one shot. And uh, so anyhow, we had a, a tent trailer that we traveled around with, and we got up there in Anaheim to go to Disneyland as the first shot, and we in a, stayed in a, in a trailer park, and right. There was the Matterhorn. We could see it from the from the trailer park. So um, 
I don't know what happened that night, but we did, we weren't there when the fireworks went off. But anyhow, next night, next morning, we're there when the gate opened. And we went up and down every. We wore ourselves down to a frazzle. We got back to the trailer park, had supper. I went into the tent trail to take, take a nap because the next day we're headed for the big hills. We're going up to the giant sequoias. One anyhow, about 10 o'clock, they started setting fireworks off. I had no idea what was going on. I thought it was a rocket attack. I come flying out of that tent and I'm crawling on the ground and my buttons on my shirt are keeping me way up too far off the ground. And this guy says to me, I says, what's the matter with your husband? He says, he just got back from Vietnam. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny now, but at that time it was not funny. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm looking up to hear all these damn fireworks going off. I felt like a damn fool. But I didn't know what the hell they were. I wasn't taking any chances. So we, uh, I spent most of my time on Vietnam on, on carriers, about 30 miles off the coast. And uh, we, we're, I worked at night most of the time. And we could sit there and look up at the sky. Here's these B-52s flying over in the sunlight. They're up there that high. We're down in the dark. So night doesn't fall. It comes up out of the earth. And uh, so anyhow, some of this buddy with mine, I said, Joe, look at that. He said, where are they going? They're going to bomb a Kwong tree. And a few minutes later, you could, you could see it off in the distance. It looked like lightning over the, over the horizon. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it just flash, 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 flash. And it went on and on and on and on. And then the sound started getting to us. And it's just a low rumble. I said, Joe, that ain't thunder. He said, yeah, damn sure ain't. I'm glad I'm not there. I don't know how many tons of bombs they dropped that night on this damn city. But here we were, a witness of it, 30 miles out at sea. And uh, I got sent to shore several times. I was in an outfit that uh, was air early warning. We had a radar on our airplanes. And they'd go airplane get in there and get broke and I have to go in and fix it. Let's get finish this one and then you can talk because they're going to get the stories messed up. They're yeah. going to get the two wars messed up. Okay. Um, so were there any um, games you played when you were little like that yeah. entertained yourself? Yeah we also always played um, Red Rover Come Over. Uh, hide, hide and seek a lot of that. Just playing old tag. Yeah. We, oh, I, I was out here by myself. I was kind of an only child here. I wasn't an only child, but I was alone. So we didn't have anybody to play hide-and-go-seek here. We're nine miles apart, but I, we didn't know them. They didn't know us. And you never saw, you never went in town to see the people in town. I mean, you were so busy making a living that you didn't, you know, you didn't get in there. So they had games in town because there were children there. But we we didn't have them out here. Did you play yeah. with the POWs? But, well, um, not play, no. but like have. Well, no. Games. My sister and my mother and uh, father talked to them. Okay. But being five, you know, yeah. it, it uh, my knowledge of what to say to them was not that much. I used to hide behind something to watch them, and when they left, when it was the last night, it was like dooms to me because it was they were so nice. Yeah. They were nice guys to have around. 
So, but um, n no, <laughs> we kept them too busy to play games. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, was, you ever hear of the game pitch card? The card game pitch? No. Well, it, it's Ken County card game. I guess it's all over, really, but it just depends on where you are. But every, um, every once in a while, everybody get together for pitch games. Mm -hmm. uh, comes the che cheddar cheese and crackers, lemonade and beer, and like that. Sit around and play pitch. And cheat as much as you can and try not to get caught. How do you play? Well, you got, you, you, you sit around and you bid on your hand. Okay. Okay, you got the ace, which is high, king, ja queen, jack, and on down. And depending on how much power you got, where you, how much you could bid, you, you, you can you got to bid at least two, because any fool can make one. Because you got high in your hand, you got it. You had five cards in your hand, right? Yeah, six. You had six cards. I don't know who the hell that is. A red truck. But anyhow, and then you lead whatever you lead out would be would be, be trump, and you can then you go ahead and play your hand. And you can trump any time you want to, but a trump is led you must follow. If you don't have a card in your hand, you can throw anything. So I don't know. And ten spots are big big deals, because that counts up for what they call game, which is only one point. It's it's a lot of fun to play. A lot of fun. And we had arguments all the time, time, and uh, Bedford, you're cheating. No, no, I'm not cheating. <laughs> it's Alan's brother. So. Well, do you have any other stories that you would like to tell us or well, anything you forgot? You didn't ask him that. You'll be here till <laughs> tomorrow. This time. <laughs> hey. Hello. How are you? Oh. I'm safe. I'm right breathing. I'm safe. Yeah. are doing uh, a survey on so forth on on World War II. I got that. Do you remember anything as a child? Yeah, I remember fire whistles blowing and dogs barking, kids screaming. You oh, can yeah. interview at any time if you like. When victory was declared, everybody had saved fireworks all during the war. Okay. And they set them off. Is that what they did at the end of the war, celebrate? That's how I, that's how we knew the war was over. Yeah. Was all the fireworks were going off all over town, so we knew it. Knew the war had to be over. That's the only reason they set them off. You know, that was it was in September. Wow. And and Japan had surrendered. Was a carnival in town? They shut down that night when VE Day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I guess that. And uh, I got to think about this stuff. <laughs> You're forcing an old man to use his brain. Let me see. We had, uh, what was it, civil defense? And our father was a uh, civil defense warden, wore a steel helmet. So he got tired of wearing a steel helmet. He put Alan on his tricycle. They had a hand pump, a little uh, tank about, I guess it held five gallons of water. Strapped that on the back of the tricycle and gave me the helmet to carry and uh, up at the corner of Kenton Philosopher's Terrace mm -hmm. the uh, fire department come around set a cardboard box with some paper on it on fire 
and we had to put it out. So we squirted the kids, we put it out. And uh, you used to have uh, air raid warnings. They'd blow the fire siren downtown, and everybody went back inside and was outside. And everybody outside or inside came out to see what was going on. And, uh, we can interview at, we, do you, would you like to be interviewed? Five years old, uh, and I live in Denton anyway. So. Well, we loved your dad already. Huh? <laughs> Ralph Capel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have enjoyed listening. This is, can I turn off this recording? This is just cute.